You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Well, talks have been intensifying over how and when Hawaii will reopen its doors to tourism. We talked to Mufi Hanneman, head of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association, about setting standards for jumpstarting the visitor industry. Some had hoped the 14-day uh, traveler quarantine would be lifted at the end of this month, and the governor is undergoing pressure to relax inter-island travel sooner than later. Well, we've had a game plan for many weeks now not just for Waikiki, because our organization is a statewide organization uh, with hotels and members on all the islands. And we have been focusing very heavily on the things that we can control. We can't control when lawmakers are going to make the decision of lifting the quarantine and opening up for inter-island travel, but what we can control is to articulate uh, and explain and educate those that need to know and also the community, of how we're going to operate under the new normal. So we've been focusing on our standards of hygiene and cleanliness and protocols that will be in place when and if the whistle is blown, that the game begins with travel. Uh, it has been uh, vetted by all of our member hotels who represent two unions, ILWU and Local 5, and we also have a bevy of them that are independent and non-union. Uh, we also uh, have asked our local uh, officials uh, who are in the various visitor industry sectors to do likewise, and of course many of them already on their own volition were doing it, such as the Restaurant Association and uh, the small restaurants are headed up by Denise Yamaguchi. Uh, we've also, on the, uh, note that the Retail Merchants Association under Tina Yamaki are also doing it. And then also organizations that we wanted to make sure that everyone can be on the same page. And so we reached out to the attractions, the ground operators, the car rentals. In other words, when the word is given that we can open up, I wanted to be sure that there would be no hesitancy, no doubt, because of the fact that you know, how, how do we know how the hotels are going to operate? How do we know how uh, the attractions uh, are going to uh, implement some of these rules uh, that become part of the new normal, if you will? Uh, so that's what we did, uh, and, and very, very pleased that uh, everyone basically has these standards in place. Hawaii Tourism Authority has done a great job of compiling this information and making it available, and of course ours is on our website at hawaiilodging.org. The frustrating aspect of all of this is that we're still waiting for word uh, when that quarantine will be lifted, and most importantly, when we can start inter-island travel. We get it. We understand that the level of confidence of the people of Hawaii uh, have to be maintained, uh, that it is indeed a safe time to do it. And we also know that there's a great fear and concern about a second wave. But that has to be juxtaposed with the fact that we have one of the lowest number of incidences now that are being uh, reported daily. Uh, we are s only uh, Montana has a better percentage than we do. But at the same time, if you flip the coin, we also are number three in the nation in terms of those who are unemployed trailing only uh, Nevada and the state of uh, Michigan by hair. So that is uh, a situation which our lawmakers need to resolve, I think, sooner rather than later. Business is all about planning. It's all about preparation. And it's just not going to happen that once they say the quarantine is lifted, 
we can basically start up. It's not going to happen that way. Now, we did um, talk with Chris Tatum at the HTA, oh gosh, this may have been a month or so ago now. And at that time, you know, all the big properties were announcing the shutdown. So what's the snapshot with your members? Uh, you know, who's open? Well, there's less than 100 hotels that are open at this time. And so that's about half, or a little less than half uh, that we know of because there are some uh, hotels or, or small lodging accommodations that are not members of ours, but we have all the major ones that are operating or, or had been operating prior to COVID. So uh, a good number of them are, are shuttered, and a good number of them, and people need to understand this, they have fixed costs that they continue to have to pay for uh, as they are shuttered. And uh, the big, biggest one, the biggest one of all, is maintaining the health benefits of employees, whether they're working uh, or whether they're furloughed. And so there's a there's a guarantee that many of them had that they would be receiving their health benefits to July 1. And so that was a, why there was quite a bit of angst and concern uh, when we got the news that the quarantine would be extended uh, beyond July 1 because uh, health benefits uh, are going to be at jeopardy uh, for many of our furloughed employees. And in addition, as I said earlier, the, the startup costs at, at, at the point in time when they say it's time to go, uh, involved uh, and have to be budgeted for uh, in terms of, uh, you know, are the pipes working, you know, and making sure the electricity is going well, uh, lighting, uh, what have you, and then also uh, the new equipment that must be installed for those hotels. They want to get their standards uh, improved uh, for this new norm. Uh, you know, all those are, are costs that have to be factored in, and you know, the training that has to be done also for people that are coming into the workforce because some are hesitant to come in now. Be, you know, they get a, a check of $600 a week from the federal government. Uh, you know, that that's it. for some of them, it's more than what they would get if they were working. So we understand that. But certainly it's going to do a bit of, uh, bit of pressure on, you know, the smaller hotels that have a shorter bench, if you will, smaller bench, uh, and then we'll be hard-pressed uh, to gear up uh, for whatever that level of resonance are going to become. The other thing, Kathy, I want to explain is that it's not going to be automatically that people are going to travel here when we open up. I mean, there are less people traveling now, and there's still that lack of confidence, if you will. I saw a survey that said 30% of Americans are saying, even if we open up across the United States, they're not going to travel to 2021. So you won't see a massive influx of visitors, as some have feared, uh, as we saw it open up again. And certainly, uh, you know, it's not going to be 10 million visitors before the end of the year. I can guarantee you that. It was probably a million, a million and a half before this pandemic hit hard. And um, we'll be lucky to get another million or so in the remaining time if they open up in July. But now it seems like it won't be until August or maybe mid-July at the earliest for inter-island travel, because you have to do that first, and we support that before you have domestic travel or even international travel back to Hawaii. If you say you have about 100 properties open, what's the hotelier's responsibility if, let's say, one of their guests gets sick and is COVID positive? I mean, are you going to keep them there on property? Do you have a special area where you can isolate people? Well, that's basically what uh, we are suggesting that they do. Well, first of all, we want them to consult with our Department of Health. And the minute that they show symptoms uh, that they may be COVID-19, but we're not doctors, you know, the, and one of the ways to get that is a temperature check. If they go beyond 100.4 degrees, uh, we want them to get tested. 
and and the testing oftentimes will have to take place or basically now has to take place off premises so we want our hotel operators to help them with their transportation to get uh, tested and then sometimes uh, it may take a day or two to get the results maybe sooner but during that time that they're in the hotel they are to be isolated uh, in a separate room and obviously contact with that uh, person will be kept at a minimum and then if they need to stay there because they've tested positive then obviously an isolated room and all the rules that we have been adhering to during this quarantine period kick in and then some. At one time I think there had been some discussion with Haima about identifying like a single property on each island where you could quarantine positive cases but I don't know where that is because things change so fast. Yes it hasn't uh, really been implemented by Haima, but, you know, it's like uh, they also wanted to make sure that we had a space that if they had to do a makeshift hospital, uh, they wanted to know what were the possible options. And I know the State Convention Center was uh, looked on as a possibility as well as the Blaisdell Center. So we've cooperated every step along the way when they've asked for the number of hotels are operating and even those that are not operating because under this emergency situation that we are in, they really can uh, basically flex the rules in the name of an emergency uh, to make those things happen. Now, there's been lots of discussion about bubbles and having some kind of relationship with, let's say, Japan or New Zealand, you know, areas where the, the, the numbers are, are low or nil, to be able to kind of resume and jumpstart, you know, those passengers coming through here. Uh, but there's also concern because on Thursday, I believe, Vegas opens up. And we all know that lots of our residents like to go Vegas to gamble. And so the concern there, too, is you might have residents that pick up something and bring it back home. So it's not just tourists coming in, but returning residents from hotspots. That's an excellent point, uh, Catherine. Uh, people don't realize that uh, the COVID cases, at least initially, uh, the majority of it, I think as high as 80%, were caused by local residents who went to hospits, hot spots and brought it back here. So, uh, you know, we know that these are the kind of things that uh, the uh, our decision makers uh, have to take into account. And you know, most importantly, uh, you know, it's important also to look to those sectors that are responsible for bringing people here. So we've said on that is, uh, you know, you really need to look to the airlines to make sure that who they're bringing here are not going to be people who are unhealthy. And then look at the airport and see what their operations are like uh, so that when one arrives here, uh, maybe there's another uh, thermal screen. Uh, and if they uh, have a temperature of over 100.4, they are not to depart the airport. They need to isolate. They need to be tested. And therefore, if they're tested and need to be quarantined, then you look at a, at a possible accommodation where they can stay there. So all these things have to be thought through. And that's why I'm saying it's important that we start inter-island travel because we're going to keep it to people, in my opinion, that are local, local residents traveling. Because that's sort of our preseason training, if you will, to see that what, we are, what we're going to employ when we do open up, you know, it works. And if it needs to be tightened up or you need a different kind of screening that needs to take place, you can implement that before you open it up to the domestic market. What's interesting about the Japanese bubble, and I know this from uh, Paul Yonamine, who heads up uh, a group that's pushing a campaign called Kizun Hawaii, and that's basically geared at the Japanese visitors to tell them, you know, you know we know the 
emergency declaration has basically removed. It's no longer in place in Japan, and you're anxious to travel to Hawaii. But now is not the time. You know, be patient. We we kind of extended. We've been supportive of uh, your efforts in the past and your travel and your business in the past. But hang on. <laughs> we still love you. We want you to come back uh, when and if we're ready to open. One of the interesting ideas that Paul has shared with us is that you take a place like Haneda, where um, they have measures in place where a person has to be tested and tested negative before they actually board the plane to come to Hawaii. So if we do a bubble, to me, that's the kind of policy that we'd like to see in place before they come here. That was Mufi Hanneman of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association talking about a reopening plan that is discussed with its members and two unions, Local 5 and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. We'll hear more from Local 5, which represents the bulk of hotels in Waikiki, later in the hour. And we have just gotten word that uh, Governor David Ige has scheduled a news conference this afternoon to talk about relaxing inter-island travel. And we should mention that former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman has just this morning filed papers to run for his old job. The election filing deadline is tomorrow. And it's now time to take a look across the globe. Iran says that its coronavirus outbreak is far from over as a new peak of cases looms on the horizon. And Russia begins to ease its lockdown despite record high weekly deaths. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 1st of June. I'm Alex Ritson. Iran says its outbreak is far from over and warns a dangerous new peak is possible. Moscow eases restrictions despite record weekly deaths and some of Europe's top museums reopen their doors. Iran has recorded its highest daily count of new infections for two months, almost 3,000. There were 81 more deaths. The government's warned there could be a dangerous new peak at any moment. Our Middle East analyst is Sebastian Usher. The health minister, Saeed Namaki, has said it's clear that the crisis is far from over. Since early April, Iran has been trying as much as it can to reopen businesses, schools and mosques after suffering the worst outbreak in the Middle East. Officially, it's recorded nearly 7,900 deaths, but other accounts have put the figure much higher. Officials have been warning for the past two weeks of a resurgence in several provinces. They've blamed people for not following preventive measures. Restrictions are starting to ease in Moscow despite a record number of deaths in Russia in the past week. The country reported more than 9,000 new cases on Monday, but the growth in infections has started to stabilise. Sarah Rainsford is in Moscow. People here have had a pretty strict lockdown, so they've spent two months all but locked up in their flats, only allowed to go to work and to walk to the nearest food shop. So that's all changed from today. Now all the shops are all open again, but it's all very complicated. In fact, the, the mayor of the city here in Moscow has put in a system, a timetable for walking, whereby each apartment block is designated specific days of the week when its residents can go outside, which has led to all sorts of jokes, particularly on social media, talking about a timetable for breathing and saying you're only allowed to do that every other day. Despite having the world's fourth highest total of COVID-19 deaths, Brazil has also continued easing lockdown measures. In the largest city, Sao Paulo, shops and malls have reopened. Mexico has one of the highest mortality rates in the world, with 11% of those who are known to have caught coronavirus dying. But the numbers of new cases and deaths have been falling in recent days, with 2,885 infections and 364 deaths reported on Monday. It's also easing some restrictions, as Ana Gabriela Rojas, a journalist in Mexico City, explains. 
Subsectors of the economy will be allowed to resume operations, and as the government says, it will be done gradually and differently in each part of the country. For example, in Mexico City, that so far has been the epicenter of the pandemic, the schools will continue to be closed, but the construction will be restarted. Also, restaurants will be allowed to operate at 30% of their capacity. Beer production also will be restarted, and this has been particularly caused a debate since the government has considered it an essential activity. In Rwanda, plans to ease restrictions have been cancelled following the country's first confirmed COVID-19 death and a spike in new infections. Travel between provinces was due to resume on Monday after a two-month lockdown. In Israel, thousands of school pupils and staff have had to go into isolation because of new coronavirus cases. Israel has been easing restrictions in recent weeks, but health officials say there's been a significant rise in infections in the past few days. Plans to start reopening schools in South Africa were cancelled at the last minute. Some pupils had been expected to return on Monday after more than two months. Nomsa Maseko is in Johannesburg. Trade unions representing teachers urged their members to stay home until COVID-19 health and safety regulations were met. The Education Department had promised to disinfect buildings and provide clean running water and personal protective equipment for all schools. But many had still not received the items. Education Minister Angie Motsecha now says schools will reopen on the 8th of June and has promised to use this week for the induction and orientation of the school's coronavirus safety plans. Some pupils have returned to schools in England, though. Drop-off times were staggered and class sizes limited to 15. But teachers' unions warn it is too soon, and a survey suggests half of all parents kept their children at home. Two of Europe's best-known galleries reopened on Monday, Amsterdam's Rijksmuseum and the Guggenheim in Bilbao. Both had been closed for several weeks. Our arts correspondent Vincent Dowd has more. This is a big day for Europe's most important museums and galleries in some nations, not in all. In Spain, the Guggenheim reopens today at a closure on the 14th of March, albeit for limited hours. And in Amsterdam, the huge Rijksmuseum opens today. The Van Gogh in Amsterdam is also reopening this week. In Rome, the Vatican museums have also opened today. It's the same story everywhere, I think, of pre-booked tickets only. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. The sign of COVID times was evident in Waikiki last week as hotel workers took to the streets, not walking side by side as in times past, but in a caravan of vehicles. We talked to Local 5 union leader Eric Gill this morning about a plan that some hotels have agreed to as properties start to get going again. Gill believes the HLT plan falls short of what should be in place. But the truth is most of the hotel chains have their own much more stringent and much more detailed plan, and they're not showing those. So the real plans that we have to confront are those that the companies will intend to impose and they're being extraordinarily uh, cagey about talking to us about those, although we know that they have them. So I think the HLTA plan, since it comes from some hotel group that doesn't have any particular power over anyone, isn't that meaningful. Uh, it's the actual plans of the hotel chains and what they mean to us and our future and our industry and our job base 
that are most important. So I see the HLT HLTA plan more as a distraction than anything else. Hotels, of course, want a low standard of uh, employee protection. The fact is, it costs money. I mean, it costs money to buy masks and gloves, and it costs money to uh, make sure people are socially distanced, and it costs money to make sure that the elevators aren't uh, overly crowded uh, in the morning when people go up and come down for shifts, you know, staggering shifts and all kinds of different things will be needed, and these hotels aren't willing to do those things. And so naturally they want a low standard that doesn't require them to do those things. But the fact is the community needs a higher standard across the board because any hotel can blow up our entire industry by handling worker safety in particular, but there's many other aspects of hotel safety that aren't, aren't uh, addressed in the HLTA plan. So, you know, the, the whole plan is, let's put it this way, Las Vegas uh, hotels are coming forward with 25-page detailed plans in a bid to open up. And Mofi's plan is three and a half pages. It doesn't, it just doesn't cover everything that hotels need to cover. So it is an inadequate plan. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, suffice as a community standard. The standard has to be high, and it has to be, it has to be enforced. And there's no enforcement provisions in the lodging and tourism plan either. So, so putting forward a, a meaningless piece of paper that is the minimum that uh, management wants to follow it's not adequate for any workers in those buildings. It's not adequate to protect the guest safety. And it's certainly not adequate to protect us in the community from the spread of disease, which gathers in workplaces, as we've seen. We did ask about what responsibilities the hoteliers have if they do have a guest that tests positive. You know, would they have an area set aside on their property? I've had this conversation a number of times with Mufi, and what Mufi doesn't understand is the nature of universal precautions. And the fact is, unless you can unless you know that somebody is not sick and in this environment you have to treat that person in that room as if the person were sick since you don't know and the fact is the notion that you can somehow parse out the sick people and put them there just begs the question of how do you how do you make the whole hotel operation safe so the fact of the matter is right now you can't get tested unless you exhibit symptoms and have an md refer you uh you know there are obviously there are mass testing is going on. But the fact of the matter is the average person can't just stand up and get tested, and, the, and no one is requiring testing before entry into Hawaii, nor are we doing arrival testing at the airport, nor are the hotels doing testing, arrival testing in the hotels, uh, except in one situation that I'm aware of. And so the fact is, without widespread universal testing, you have to take universal precautions. You know, 25% of COVID-positive people don't exhibit symptoms at all and therefore will not have gone for tests, but they can and well might be contagious. And so the, problem, the, the whole notion that, oh, boy, if I find a sick person, I'll put them over there, it misses the point. The point is you don't know, and therefore you have to take measures to ensure the safety of everyone, uh, assuming that that guest might be sick. And that's what the hotels don't want to do. What else uh, are, are you asking for? There have to be uh, detailed protocols and rights for workers to have you know, the proper equipment. You know, I, I asked one of our members, did they give you a mask? And this was you know, weeks ago, okay, so I'm aware things move. And he said, yeah, they gave me a mask last week. Well, a mask last week means you've been 
breathing germs for 13 days or whatever, six days. The fact is workers need multiple masks if they're going to do checkout cleanings, and they need multiple gloves, and they need, to, they need uh, in some cases, to be gowned up. And, and so the, that costs money, and there's no regulation on that in the HLTA plan, but it absolutely has to be there. But most importantly, you can put anything you want on paper, and that's what Mofi's proposing is to put a you know, meaningless piece of paper up. But the fact is, if there's no enforcement measures, then the paper is meaningless. And the only meaningful enforcement measure here is to give workers the right to complain and protect their jobs if they do and have, have a, a, a situation where a worker can effectively complain about inadequate um, safety measures being done. And workers have to have rights to um, refuse to work under, under safety Breaches. conditions that in, in endanger their safety. There, there already are uh, statutory things on it there on file. But imagine the, imagine the position that Mufi and his uh, association want to put people in. The Lodging and Travel Association is right now in front of Congress demanding that hotels be given blanket immunity against COVID-related tort actions. So in other words, workers can't sue them, guests can't sue them, you can't sue them if you go there and get sick. Nobody can sue them. They've been immunized, and mm -hmm. McConnell has already already said publicly that he's not going to pass any relief for workers until that passes. And so what that means is, okay, we get sick, we can't sue. Okay, so we get sick and we try to file what? Workers' comp? Now what? Prove that you got it at work. Company will deny the claim. And that leaves the worker with no recourse. One thing that Mufi's plan clearly did not, he told people, stay home if you have a sniffle. And yet every hotel has an occurrence policy that if you overutilize your sick leave, you will get disciplined or fired. So if these hotels are pushing to reopen, we have to push them back about are you bringing the people back or not? Because the last thing we need is a hotel reopening with no jobs in it. The people of Hawaii do not support the tourism rebuilding up to $10 million a year. Mm -hmm. We're going to have hotels that are empty, and it should be the empty hotels should be the ones that refuse to provide jobs for Hawaii's people. Either they're going to have jobs or they shouldn't be in operation we have too many hotels already, given, our, given the fact it's going to be a, a long uh, ramp up. We should be cracking down on the vacation rentals. We should be putting on hold any new hotel construction applications. We should, we should be requiring high levels of employment recovery when hotels reopen. Yeah. Otherwise, the tourism will continue to be a parasite on Hawaii instead of a benefit. And, it, and Hawaii's people demand that we do better as we reopen tourism going forward. That was a conversation we had with Local 5's Eric Gill this morning. He's advocating for more job protections for his 11,500 members. He's concerned for their health insurance and worries that employees will not be hired back right away. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, committed to bringing people together to build homes. Volunteer opportunities are available for a build this month. Registration at honoluluhabitat.org. This Tuesday at 8 p.m., join us on HPR2 for the next Hawaii Symphony Orchestra Best of rebroadcast. It's internationally acclaimed American conductor Leonard Slatkin in a program that pairs Finland's Elena Vahala with Finnish master composer Jean Sibelius. 
That's Tuesday at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Broadster Fujichaku Robbins. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Waimea Valley, a botanical garden and cultural site announcing its reopening June 5th with a commitment to following health guidelines for staff and visitors. WaimeaValley.net. Our reality check today features a story about how this health and economic crisis has impacted a very integral part of our community uh, that in many cases is tied to hotel workers. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad, Chad Blair joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this story is about a practice that many workers uh, uh, have traditionally, you know, they've sent money, part of their paycheck, to family members back in the Philippines. Right. And it's not just the Philippines, but definitely uh, that country very much relies heavily on what's known as, as remittance. And uh, interestingly enough, Anita Hofschneider opens her story with a hotel worker who works for the same union that Eric Gill uh, represents, Local 5. You just had Eric on talking about things. But this particular hotel operator, she works at the Sheraton Maui. She's been in Hawaii for 30 years, but she still sends money home every two weeks back to her family in the Philippines. But that all changed uh, about two and a half months ago when she was laid off. She's one of 230,000 people statewide that have you know, filed for unemployment. And of course, this illustrates yet another example, maybe one people most, many people are not aware of, about the large immigrant population that's here that relies on their paychecks to help family and friends back home. It is a, a huge financial loss. Right. And so whether you've got family in the Philippines or Tonga or Samoa, a good part of the paycheck that they bring home, they share with their family members because the economies are not that great there. No, they're not. In fact, Anita actually mentions in Tonga, 40 percent of their GDP is is dependent on remittance. And in Samoa, it's about 18 percent. In the Philippines, I think the 10 percent is the figure that she included. And it, it adds up to a lot of money. The World Bank has estimated or rather forecast since COVID hit town that worldwide remittance payments are falling as much as 20 percent. And that includes so far a drop of 13 percent in the Philippines alone. Right. And you and I have uh, done stories over the years where, you know, there's a typhoon that's hit the area. Mm, A lot of families will send more if they can. uh, But when their paycheck is gone, they can't be as generous. Right. And the Philippines, of course, no stranger to terrible storms because of its its location. You know, there was such a large Filipino um, immigrant community here in the islands. Local 5 heavily depends on, on these folks as their workforce for the hotels. If I have Anita's story correct, 9,000 members of Local 5, many of them Filipino, have been furloughed since COVID. And of course, we all know about the woes that we have with our unemployment claim system at the state level. It's, it can take six weeks to, to access that and start getting uh, support from unemployment payments. But, so boy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, Go ahead. it's a double whammy. And, and I know that a lot of the uh, uh, those remittance offices are are hard to find, you know, open ones anyway, to send the money. I, n- I never knew that these actually existed. She, uh, Anita calls them stores, remittance stores that exist specifically to help wire money back home. I mentioned the hotel worker from Maui. She managed to find a Western Union open up 
uh, at a Maui food land in order to send her money back home, or what she could send, given that she's taken such a big cut in her pay. Yeah, so it, it is a dilemma. So it's not just here in Hawaii, but those cuts really go deeper as you look at these various island communities uh, in the Pacific that rely on on the generosity of their relatives. Right. I'll, ask, I'll add one other aspect of this as well. The situation in the Philippines is not good when it comes to COVID-19. They have a pretty heavy lockdown that has happened. And let's face it, the Philippines government is not as efficient as American government. And COVID definitely has been a serious problem in that country. So that only adds to the woes of people trying to get money from folks here in Hawaii. Right. So, uh, yeah, lots to be thankful for, for those of us who still do have jobs. And our hearts go out to those who have lost them. But thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's politics and opinion editor, Chad Blair, with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org for Anita Hofschneider's story and more on the COVID crisis. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence with some interesting news about an Earth-like planet orbiting in one of our nearest stellar neighbors. Uh, Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. As usual, we're turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we happen to have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn still in the morning sky. And also, don't forget that Venus will still be visible in the evening after sunset. The moon is approaching its full phase this week, so prepare for bright night skies towards the end of the week. And I understand you've got interesting news from our nearest neighbor in the galaxy? Yes, it's exciting news from Planet Hunters this week, with the announcement that an Earth-like planet does indeed exist around one of our nearest stellar neighbors, the star Proxima Centauri. The planet was previously observed and was named Proxima b. However, we weren't certain that this planet was actually a planet at all. But new observations using the Espresso instruments attached to the Very Large Telescope show that this planet is very, very close to our own Earth in mass and size. Things get even more exciting when we consider the fact that this Earth-type planet exists in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri. That telescope's in Chile, yeah? It certainly is. And so that's the Goldilocks zone where the temperature is just perfect for the existence of liquid water. It is indeed, and that's what's very exciting about this discovery. And although we can't say for certain whether there is water there or not, the data is very, very encouraging. And on to that really big $10 million, or should we say $10 trillion question, how about the prospects of life? Well, there's no doubt that astronomers are now seriously considering the prospect of liquid water and a rocky surface. But this planet is still very different to our own Earth in the fact that one side of it always faces the star and the other side faces away towards the dark of space. We have absolutely no idea how this will determine what sort of biomes, if any, exist on the surface. But the prospects are very exciting indeed. 
Does that mean they're trying a little Morse code light flash thing to see if anybody responds? <laughs> well, ironically, considering the scale of things, this planet and this star are actually fairly close at only 4.1 or 4.2 light years. Wow. So you could, in theory, have a conversation. <laughs> and I'm guessing with new instruments that come online in the future, we'll learn even more. Yeah, this is really cool because we can use spectrographs and also something called polarimetry to potentially analyze the atmosphere of this planet if we can get a high enough resolution. And that will almost certainly give us an answer as to whether there is clouds in the sky and maybe something else going on there. <laughs> I like that. Something else going on there. <laughs> That's a good way to leave it. It's Christopher Phillips, another fun uh, report, and we appreciate it. Thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep archived at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. You are back with the conversation. And continuing our thread of a possible reopening of Hawaii's tourism industry, we'd like to share an email sent to us on the matter by one of our listeners. He writes, I believe that actions of the state government in continuing a quarantine and always moving the goalposts are more detrimental to the well-being of the state's economic recovery, specifically tourism, and therefore the mental and physical health of Hawaiian residents who depend on the tourism economy as well. I do find it very rational to have Trans-Pacific travelers tested before traveling to Hawaii as a viable option as opposed to the 14-day quarantine, which, as all tourism uh, tourism statistics would indicate, is much longer than the average vacation in the state. I believe those visiting the state would certainly be willing to take tests as part of protocol to visit Hawaii. Further, I find it strange that as important as tourism is to the state, that the state still has not been able to develop procedures to accept trans-Pacific travelers. People in Hawaii are depressed, desperate, and are left with little hope based on the state government's failure to reinvigorate the economy of the state. In no way do I see the state following the data, statistics, and science of this virus since the outbreak. And that email comes from listener Peter Quinn. We do thank you for your feedback. If you have a comment about the show, call our talkback line at 808-792-8217 or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Concerned about the spread of COVID-19, dental hygienists asked for guidance after some dental offices called them back to work for non-essential appointments last month. Until then, the Centers for Disease Control had recommended only emergency procedures. The Hawaii Dental Association reached back out to its members last week as new guidelines and best practices were clarified. We talked to Kim Wynn about the reopening of dentist offices across the state. CDC did release updated guidance on May 19th and very similar to what ADA uh, is recommending and what you're seeing nationwide as businesses and healthcare resume operations. Um, The current recommendations um, 
are obviously to assess each patient's oral health condition and determine uh, with them, based on their oral health history, the best procedure and timing of that procedure. And so, um, you know, we are certainly aware that we still need to be cautious in the event of a, uh, a second surge, but patients are encouraged to talk with their providers about non-elective procedures, you know, and determine if those procedures can be performed now. And so it is a case-by-case basis. So, so clarify for us, so are cleanings okay? Are, uh, you know, non-emergency appointments okay? So um, initially, you know, six, seven weeks ago, the recommendation was to postpone elective procedures and only see emergency cases. And so we had a lot of oral health care that was delayed. Now the you know, CDC is, has updated that to say, um, you know, certainly talk with patient and doctor um, or to discuss among each other, between each other, um, the particular procedure that is needed. So, you know, whether it's a cleaning um, or, you know, a root canal that doctor and patient can, can discuss those procedures and determine uh, whether or not to, to proceed. Um, and so, so offices are performing more procedures now and patients are, are requesting um, additional procedures. I think as we start to learn more and more about this virus and how mm-hmm. it's transmitted, uh, I know there is some concern about the aerosol part of it and and because there's a lot of activity in a, in the in the dentist chair uh, where there are aerosol droplets that are produced uh, what's the best advice I guess that's out there to minimize right. transmission right right so you know each um, each patient case and each patient procedure is is different based on the patient's oral health history um, and so the CDC guidelines, do suggest, you know, avoiding aerosol-generating procedures um, and, you know, has provided uh, suggestions on on how to do that. And so, again, it's up to the dentist and the patient to discuss that particular procedure, what it involves, um, and whether or not uh, this is the the right time for, uh, for that procedure. So, again, it comes down to patient and doctor discussing that and doctor also, you know, exercising his or her professional judgment um, in recognizing whether or not the office is able to perform that procedure at this time. You are right. This, this virus continues to, we continue to learn more about it each day. And, uh, you know, we are trying to change up our, our systems and keep up with the changing nature of, of the virus. But I guess the message out there is you should expect a different experience at your dentist. That That is absolutely correct, yes. Um, you know, just like so many other industries out there, uh, you know, patients are being asked to, uh, you know, there's a lot more preparation um, heading into a, a dentist's office. You know, we're asking patients to wait in the car, you know, call us when they arrive. Uh, we do a lot of pre-screening over the phone, um, you know, arrive with uh, face coverings, you know, minimize the number of visitors you bring with you. So if you can, you know, just come alone. Um, you know, the waiting room, you know, chairs are being separated. Um, you know, 
reading materials are removed, and then you know when you get into the operatory, um, you know there's there's additional procedures that both dentists and and his team and patients are are taking, and so. It is. It is a very different experience. And but that said, we still want patients and the public to know that we are we are very keen about the safety of our patients and and dental team. And we are certainly implementing every every possible procedure, you know, increased infection control measure uh, out there to ensure that you know patients get the oral health care they need in a timely manner um, and in a safe manner. So it's uh, everything from stepping up on the sanitation, more frequent uh, kind of wipe downs of high touch surfaces, that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, plexiglass at the at the front desk. You know, more hand sanitizing stations. It will be such a different feel. But I do know that our dental team are very excited to see their patients again and and I know that patients are you know are wanting to resume their health care um, and that that includes oral health care and so I, I know both parties are, are excited to you know resume that interaction uh, we just we want to ensure our patients and our public that the interactions will be safe and that health care in general is is very important and including oral health care and so we we want to be there for our patients and, and the public, and we want to be there uh, safely for them. The guidance is there that uh, temperature checks are performed. The HDA is not a regulatory body, and so it's not, you know, we certainly cannot mandate that, but we do hear that offices that I've, I've talked to, members that I've talked to, they are implementing that. And I think, you know, I think that behavior is is becoming pretty common now as you know as folks return to stores and and go shopping and and all and so it's certainly a behavior that I think patients coming to the dental office can expect right and you want to be able to protect the staff as well to make sure that they feel comfortable coming in and interfacing because you're in such close contact and they're over your face right I mean you can't get around that Absolutely, absolutely. You you are correct, and uh, you know we we work as a team, and so it's you know it's the dentist, it's the hygienist, assistant, front desk, it's everyone that's that's involved, and so you know we've taken measures including staggering staff schedules, patient schedules, so that we have minimal number of professionals in one setting. So we're we're doing our best to make it work with you know safety for patients and the dental team. That was Kim Wynn, head of the Hawaii Dental Association, talking about the additional guidance that has come out from the Senator Centers for Disease Control about resuming non-essential dental appointments. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. The daily news cycle continues to expose how America contends with racism 
Today from 2 to 4, public radio listeners from across the country will gather for America, Are We Ready? A national call-in about racism, violence, and our future together. Join hosts from WNYC and Minnesota Public Radio along with other special guests for an important conversation in an urgent moment. Today from 2 to 4 on HPR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, whose Kidney Cars program provides funding for community health and education services. Learn more about vehicle donation at kidneyhi.org. Well, we are all out of time, so that does it for us. Tomorrow, we talk about marketing the islands as a discussion intensifies about reopening for tourism safely. What do you think? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow, Tuesday, with more of the conversation. Thank you.